Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Well, good afternoon. We're glad you all are here. I think before we go any further, I want to recognize two people who are responsible, really, for uh, this program, and that is Ann and Rob Raymond, who uh, are old friends of Jim Tobin. Jim was a groomsman in their wedding and uh, still very close friends, and so we're so glad that uh, the, the Raymonds are here and, and big supporters of the event to, to welcome Jim. Thank you so much, Ann and Rob. And so before we begin the interview, uh, it's my honor to introduce Jim. Jim uh, is a professor of uh, history at Miami of Ohio, uh, history and writing. He teaches courses in journalism and on narrative nonfiction. Uh, This is his uh, fourth major book, his third biography. The first one won a national award, was on uh, Ernie Pyle, which is available for sale outside. uh, Next one was on the Wright Brothers, which also won a national award. Uh, and his other biography is one we're here to talk about today, which just came out last month. It's received incredible uh, critical acclaim. The Man He Became, How FDR Defied Polio to Win the Presidency. So just so you're clear, this is not a book about FDR's presidency. It is a book about the man who became the president and what he did to become the president, in particular with the focus on define polio, as, as the subtitle says. So before saying anything further, please welcome Jim Tobin. So Jim, obviously, when we, when we think about FDR, most people think about, OK, he was the president who uh, took us through the Great Depression, who took us through most of World War II, Uh, He was also the great communicator. We have nothing to fear but fear itself, his famous speeches, his fireside chats. But I have to say that after reading your book, uh, I will think of him more than anything else as the man who was able to defy polio and uh, who had the strength of character not to be set back when he lost the use of his legs at age 39. So uh, is it your perception that uh, his response to polio tells us more about the essential Franklin Roosevelt than any other component of his life. Well, I don't know if I'd go that far. Um, You know, his background, that family, two families, really. The the Roosevelts were an extraordinary family. Uh, He was inspired as a young man by the uh, example of his distant cousin, Theodore Roosevelt. Um, Spent time with Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt's brother was FDR's uh, godfather. The families were, were close, even though uh, in, in the family tree they were quite distant. Then there was the Delano family, which was, in its way, even a, a sort of uh, culturally more powerful uh, a family than the Roosevelts. Uh, FDR's formidable mother, Sarah Delano Roosevelt, always liked to say, well, you know, Franklin is really a Delano. 
and when I got to know a little bit more about the Delano family, I realized what she was talking about. So I think that 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 um, heritage of uh, ambition, uh, a sort of a deep uh, sense of noblesse oblige in the best sense. I think that that, more than anything else, was the formation of, of FDR's foundational character. What polio did was allow him to prove, I think as much to himself as to everybody else, that he had not only that amazing family background, but that he had a, a, a depth of courage that, he had, that had never been tested before. And so, um, you know, there's some things you don't find out about yourself until you're put to the test. That was his great test. He learned what he had inside him. I think it was a guess at first, a wish to overcome polio. And he found out that he actually had the strength of character to draw on to do that. There was definitely a link, though, between the uh, courage to overcome polio and his incredible ambition. Oh, no question about that. He was, he was uh, a guy, it's funny, I, uh, some years ago when I was working on the book, Somebody said, well, wasn't it really Eleanor who drove his ambition? And I said, oh, no, not, you know, not in the slightest. I hope nobody thinks that. FDR was the most ambitious man alive and wanted the presidency from a, the time he was a, a kid. And uh, so he could not give up that ambition. Uh, and, and so you're right. It was absolutely a push and pull relationship between the polio and his ambition. He would, he, it defined him. The, that quest for the presidency, I think in some sense, a quest to fulfill the kind of belief that his parents had in him, and at the same time to match the example of Theodore Roosevelt, very powerful force in his life. Mm -hmm. Now, on page 70 of your book, uh, you raise a question that presumably Franklin Roosevelt asked of himself and so many other Americans did at the time, uh, that had any passing familiarity with polio as of 1921 once the di diagnosis was made. And the question was, was it really possible for a 39-year-old Anglo-Saxon Episcopalian in, good, in excellent health, a man who lived in the best surroundings with the highest standards of cleanliness and safety, to contract infantile paralysis? Wasn't this a disease that struck only children, especially poor, unfortunate children, of the slums. So how'd this happen? Um, here's how I think it happened. And that was the perception. Uh, it was not the truth of the matter. In fact, many children who had been uh, infected with the polio virus actually lived in uh, circumstances of good sanitation. If I go too much farther with that, we'll get into a real technical explanation. Um, but polio is, uh, strangely, uh, unlike many other of the terrible childhood illnesses, a disease of good sanitation. So how did he get sick? In the first place, FDR had, um, had always been susceptible to germs. Um, there's clearly, there was clearly something, uh, there was a shortcoming in his immune system. He was brought up as an only child on a fairly isolated country estate on the Hudson River. His mother did not like to see him playing with the village boys, and so he didn't pick up the germs that most of us picked up when we were playing with our playmates. So he didn't develop those immunities. So he was sick all the time, both before polio and after polio, with various minor ailments and some serious ones. So there was that. Then on July 28, 1921, uh, he had run for vice president just the year before. 
he had been defeated, um, but now was trying to remake his career as a New York State politician. So he was getting ready to run for the senator, for governor. So he was get, making the rounds, very active in uh, charitable organizations, political organizations. One of the things that he took on was the chairmanship of the New York Area Boy Scout uh, Council. His kids were Boy Scouts. And he went to a huge Boy Scout campout at a big state park up the Hudson River from New York City. And it was there that he encountered the polio virus. We know that because we can tell, based on how many days later he started to show symptoms, that that must have been almost surely the day that he got sick. He got it, he picked it up either from one of those kids, or as the book I think makes clear for the first time, he picked it up from polluted water in this state park. There was an obscure uh, New York uh, State Public Health report that I was able to find only through the magic of, of Google Books um, that showed that uh, an engineering study had been done uh, just a few months earlier that, that uh, isolated the presence of E. coli, the E. coli bacteria in those water sources, which means the presence of human waste. That's how the polio virus is spread around. So you can't know for sure whether it was a kid or whether it was the bad water, but it certainly happened on that day. One of my favorite sentences of the book that speaks to what you were just talking about is on page 28. He's trying to explain how this polio would be expected to be in a Boy Scout camp. He said, in plainer words, children playing outdoors in the summertime are apt to shit in the woods. <laughs> one, one of my colleagues at Miami, who's, I have a historian colleague at Miami who is not approved by any stretch of the imagination. She happened to read that early chapter, and she said, you cannot say this. <laughs> and so when she said that, I thought, well, yeah, now definitely I'm going to say it. <laughs> All right, now, Jim, a major challenge in writing a biography of FDR is the fact that he essentially never opened up about what he was really thinking. Your book talks about his heavily forested interior, uh, how his mind had subterranean streams, he was a complex tapestry, and he realized that, he maybe even delighted in it to the extent that he once told movie star Orson Welles that he considered himself an actor in the way that he presented his persona. So how did you get past FDR's opaqueness in drawing conclusions about what made him tick? Um. It's a great question. I, I, uh, I think that I probably never did get past his opaqueness. Um, that forested interior remark is a quotation of the great playwright Robert Sherwood, who worked as a speechwriter for FDR. Brilliant guy, very perceptive about the human character, the human condition. And in a wonderful, the first great biography of uh, FDR, which, which Sherwood wrote, called Roosevelt and Hopkins, he said, I tried to look into that forested interior, but I never could figure out what was going on in there. So the fact is that I tried, you also used the word conclusions. Much of what I say about Roosevelt's motivations is more in the nature of conjecture than conclusions. Um, the best conjecture I could give based on the best evidence I had, but a lot of that evidence was fragmentary. Um, and one of the things, I, I think you all have had David McCullough here as a guest, uh, the great popular historian. He has a wonderful essay where he writes about um, uh, the uh, uh, great 19th century bi biologist, uh, uh, Louis Agassiz, who was known to tell his biology students at Harvard upon delivering them a dead fish to examine. He would put the fish down in front of everybody, 
every student and simply say, look at your fish. And then he would leave the room. Then he would come back <clears throat> and he would say, well, what have you observed? And all these bright students would say, what the hell? It's a fish, <laughs> a dead fish. And they'd come up short and he would say, all right then, look at your fish. And he would leave again, he would come back. And finally, they would start to realize that if they looked hard enough, they could come up with the mo you know, very uh, astute observations. And uh, he would reward them finally by saying, yes, yes, you've got it, that's brilliant. Now, your next assignment, look at your fish. <laughs> now, David McCullough tells that story as a kind of object lesson for historians. He said, look at the documentary material that all the historians look at when they're looking at a major character like Roosevelt. I was looking at materials at the Franklin Roosevelt Library in New York that many biographers and historians had looked at before. I was trying to look at my fish. I was trying to see things that others maybe had missed. So I don't know that for sure that I did that, but I sure tried to. And so I was looking for you know, little, little fragments of evidence. I'll give you an example. FDR, in the weeks and months after he was ill, quickly began to write letters to his many contacts around the country. This guy who had a million friends, and because of this vice presidential campaign, he'd made many more contacts in the Democratic Party that he was trying to, trying to nurture, keep contact with. And from the moment he began to write to people, he would say, my doctors assure me that I'm getting along beautifully. I'm far exceeding expectations for this quick recovery that I'm making. Now, I had the doctor's letters too, okay? Doctor's letters between each other, not to FDR, but the doc two doctors writing to each other. And they weren't saying anything like, oh, he's gonna make a miraculous recovery. So I kept thinking, why? Why did he write this to people when he, even though his doctors may have been not fully frank with him, he must have known that what he was telling his friends was vastly over-optimistic. So why? Why would he do that? I don't know why. But I started to realize the pattern was so powerful, given that and then what came later. He was telling himself that this is what was going to happen. He would never admit to anyone else in his family, to any of his doctors, or to himself that there was a possibility that he would not recover the ability to walk. Now, he, he never did recover the, the ability to walk by himself. But it was by that insistence, that keeping at bay any possibility of despair, that he was able to make this work. I've said he, he sort of was a, a gigantic optimism machine. And it began right from the very beginning. So that's, that's what I tried to do, was stare at those letters over and over again and try and see patterns in them that perhaps other people had missed. Mm -hmm. Well, to your knowledge, has any other FDR biographer besides you concluded that polio and the inspiring story associated with FDRs define it, and then his actually using that disability to his political advantage was a main cause of FDR's rise to the presidency? Has anybody done that before? Well, no, no one's been as brilliant, uh, <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, no, thanks for pointing that out, Tom. <laughs> no, as a matter of fact, a, a couple of biographers have, have pointed out you know, some of the benefits of polio in the, in the longer career. I, I think in a way that, that what I did was try to put that insight, which is not original to me, more front and center, and try and, try and make this as a case, um, because my book 
only covers the period from 1921 until his election in 1932. I had the liberty of, of expanding on that, trying to develop that thesis uh, at greater length. I, I do think it's a convincing one. And I'm not sure anybody else has explained how FDR made use of the comeback as part of his political narrative when he finally was able to get back into politics and first run for governor in 1928 um, as, a, as a prelude to running for the presidency, which he certainly intended to do. He was able to present himself as, as in, in one way that he never had before. Now, FDR had enormous advantages in politics, as I said, this golden family background, the greatest name in American politics. Uh, he had been to Harvard. He had, he had done everything that, that you could do to put yourself into the American aristocracy. What he didn't have was any kind of a common touch. What he could do now, coming back from this terrible, devastating illness, was to present himself as somebody who had had great difficulty and had surmounted it. One of his um, great political aides was a guy named Jim Farley. Uh, who became his campaign manager in 1932, became postmaster general, was basically the political conciliary in the Roosevelt administration. He had been boxing commissioner of the state of New York, one of his jobs as a political boss. Loved boxing. And what he said uh, during that campaign at one point was, the greatest accolade in sports writing is this fellow was on the deck and came back, got up and came back to win. That was what could now be said of FDR, what he was able to show about himself. I think that that allowed him um, to present himself as a man of the people in a way that he never could have done before. The next question is tied to one of our student questions. We have a number of outstanding students here for the program, and it's this. As of 1921, when he contracted polio, FDR and his wife, Eleanor, had been estranged for three years. It had been three years since she had discovered the love letters with her assistant, Lucy Mercer. And so given that they were no longer united in their marriage and hadn't been for three years and were essentially leading at least semi-separate lives as of 1921, how did Eleanor respond to the polio? Well, she was amazing. She, after he had betrayed her, he had been disloyal to her, and the marriage was very tense. She came to his side. She, she literally nursed him for a number of months. She had nurses training. Uh, she did that work. Um, I think she perceived, although she did not believe he could possibly have another career in politics, she thought it was important for him to believe it, so she supported that ambition, brought people into the home uh, to have conversations with him, keep his interest alive. So um, I think that, that uh, she did, you know, she, she acted above and beyond the call of marital duty. Mm -hmm. uh, she was amazing in that role. Now another, which is a lot more, uh, or a lot less colorful at least somewhat than my other excerpt here, <coughs> in the book that stood out was her description. Eleanor's description of the look on her husband's face when he was told the first time, you have polio. Yeah. She said, when she was asked the question many, many years later after FDR's death, how did your husband react when he was given the news that he had polio? She said, there was only one other time that I saw an expression on his face like that, December 7th, 1941, when he was told 
when he was dealing with, she, didn't, she wasn't with him when he was told, when he was dealing that day with the destruction of much of the American fleet uh, in Hawaii. At Pearl Harbor. Yeah. Same reaction. All right, getting back to his personality, his complex tapestry personality. In the book you talk about he had a multi-dimensional response, which you would expect of a complex tapestry, a multi-dimensional response to the polio, uh, going through the negative emotions of inner rage, deep grieving, denial, fear, depression. But at the same time, he always maintained a positive, cheery, defiance, exterior attitude intolerant of anyone who expressed any type of pity to him. So with these conflicting emotions going on simultaneously, is it fair to say there was something of a civil war going on inside of FDR's head after he contracted polio in 1921? Yeah, I suppose that's right. I hadn't thought of it that way. Um, the things that I wrote about the reaction that people have to a severe trauma like this come out of my reading, not of FDR's own material, because he was never candid about those dark feelings that he had, never wrote about them, never spoke about them, as far as we know. So I drew that from reading the memoirs of other people who had had polio or were se severely disabled. And so it's the, the pattern of reaction is so uniform, we can, we can be pretty sure that Roosevelt felt these things. I, I think he's fighting one with the other. You know, this, this insistence that everything is going to be okay is actually not an unusual reaction uh, in response to trauma. Um, uh, there is a will to, to, to believe that things are going to be all right. That's how you keep the shock and the despair at bay. So I think it is a kind of civil war. Mm -hmm. Now, to present the FDR story to the American people with a positive spin on his battle with polio, involved three main characters besides FDR himself. His wife, Eleanor, his assistant, Lewis Howe, and his doctor, George Draper. And for the most part, did the press take Howe, Draper, and Eleanor at their word, such that there was very little investigative reporting that went on regarding the seriousness of his illness? Uh, there, there was not much press inquiry. Um, this turned out to be an interesting part of the story. How, how did they announce the news, and how did they kind of keep the press abreast of his progress? Now, in the first, it gets complicated, but in the first few weeks, um, uh, Eleanor and Louis Howe, his aide, were reluctant to um, release much information. Um, and I think it was because, largely because FDR's mother, Sarah Roosevelt, very close to this pair, uh, was overseas. She was on her annual European tour. And they couldn't get the word to her. They couldn't get a real you know, um, explanatory letter to her before she was going to get on her liner and, and cross the ocean to come back. So they tried to keep the news under wraps, I think, essentially, to protect her. Then uh, when she was back, and when, when they had a definitive diagnosis, and FDR had returned from their summer place up in Maine, to New York City, excuse me, then the news was fully released. Um, but after that, it was assumed that, FDR, that FDR's political career was over. Once that happens, there's not much of a story anymore. I'm a former journalist. I know how these things go. And, and I can tell you that a guy who has 
there's, there's a certain first story that you write about this tragedy befalling this famous and successful young man. Um, and after that, he's out of the news. And so there wasn't much incentive to find out more about how he was doing. Um, and uh, so you don't find much in the newspapers for three more years until FDR discovered this amazing um, a set of mineral springs down in Warm Springs, Georgia. Many of you have probably seen Warm Springs, certainly know about it. Then the story, then there was a new story to be told, a comeback story. Louis Howe, FDR's press aide, started to put that story out. That's when the reporters started to pay attention again. And um, then it was, here's how well he's doing, you know, better than you'd expect for this guy that seemed to be out of politics. So as he comes back into politics with his first big appearance at the 1924 Democratic Convention, and then for the next eight years as he rise, his rise uh, goes to the point that he gets the Democratic nomination, gets elected president, did most Americans know that he had polio? Or, or what was the status from your research of how much Americans really understood what his condition was? Yeah. Well, they certainly, um, in 1924, this is the uh, Democratic convention where Governor Al Smith of New York was nominated. FDR was his political ally. And so Smith chose him to give this address. He needed Roosevelt's backing and his big name. Um, and it was pretty clear to any of the many thousands of, of people inside Madison Square Garden that this was, it was absolutely clear that this was a man who was crippled. Um, who could not walk without assistance. Um, and, and the coverage, the national newspaper coverage that occurred at that time, made it perfectly clear what the story was um, and how disabled uh, he had been by this disease. And I think the same is true when he ran for governor in 1928. That was central to most of the coverage. So uh, people did know about it. This gets to one of the points that, that I think the book makes, which is that the view that many of us have today which is that FDR concealed his condition, is, has really become uh, a, a kind of a widespread myth um, that, that uh, comes more out of debate over the FDR memorial during the 1990s um, than what was actually the truth at the time. Well, talking about that FDR memorial, one of the images is, one of the statues is of him sitting in a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. What's wrong with that image? Well, FDR didn't, wasn't in a wheelchair very much. That's another thing we often hear. He spent the rest of his life in a wheelchair. No. Uh, FDR used a wheelchair a couple times a day to be wheeled around from one room to another. It was convenient. This is behind closed doors. When he was out in public, he would walk. He was capable of walking if he had his braces on and if he had a cane in one hand and he had a, an assistant's arm to hold on to with the other. That was his, his public presentation, and he, and he could walk. Um, in private, the wheelchair was used, as I say, just to get from one place to another. So the wheelchair is a little misleading. Um, there's a wonderful statue of Roosevelt in London. The British think very highly of FDR for obvious reasons. It shows him standing with a cane. That was his public presentation in the U.S. and to the rest of the world. That, to me, is a more fitting way of presenting him. Um, I understand reasons why people wanted him portrayed in a wheelchair. And it's, uh, it, it presents one facet of the reality about him. Here in Texas, we always have politics going on. And one of our state's highest profiles is Greg Abbott, our attorney general, who's now running for governor. 
And Greg Abbott thanked Franklin Roosevelt for his being in a position where nobody talks about him being in a wheelchair anymore. Is that, that part of the message of FDR, how he transformed the American mindset toward those with disabilities? There is still a stigma. Everybody knows somebody with a, with a significant disability, and, and that friend of yours, that relative of yours, will tell you, when speaking honestly, that it's still difficult to uh, have normal interactions with people who are normally able. But there's also no question that people with disabilities now can have a full participatory role in American life. FDR started that. FDR's example uh, was an absolutely irrefutable argument that somebody with, you know, who could not walk on its own and then, you know, um, by comparison, pe people with other kinds of disabilities could play a full role, could do what they wanted to do as other people did. So uh, even though FDR did not set himself up as a disability crusader, that example, more than anything else, I think has laid the foundation for where we are today. Now, uh, my last question really is, is, a, is an opportunity for the audience to hear you, to hear the rhythm of your language in the writing. And whenever I go to buy a book in the bookstore, I always look at the first page and the last page because if those are really great, then I buy the book. If they're not, then I know the book's not gonna be very, very good. <laughs> and so, Jim, you get an A plus for your ending. So, for the benefit of the crowd, and hopefully it'll motivate those of you who haven't already bought the book to want to buy it, because it is an exceptional book, is the last four paragraphs, <clears throat> which to me really tie a ribbon around the man he became and bring it all together in, in a perfect Christmas bow. So I would ask you to, to read those paragraphs. You know, I was gonna say, um, when you first talked about this, Talmadge, there's a, there's a guy who writes about books on the internet who has a great blog, and his test is, when you pick up that book in the bookstore, go to the 99th page, page 99. <laughs> and I can tell you it's true, authors work hard on the first page, and they work hard on the last page. <laughs> but, but you know, at page 99, they may be thinking, Let, let's just get, keep it moving here, you know? So, so I think that's a pretty good test. Luckily, you're not asking me to read that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this one I did work a little harder on. If a person's sense of self, his belief about who he really is, is the story of his own life that he carries in his mind, then FDR, as president, must have drawn power from the turn his story took between 1921 and 1932. He knew he had done something terribly difficult. Through exercise, practice, and compromise with his own highest hopes, he had recovered some of the strength and mobility he had lost to the polio virus. But more important and more difficult, he had defeated the stigma that prevented people with disabled limbs from participating fully in life struggles. That victory required a fierce will, many wiles, and a lot of help. The wiles and the will lay somewhere inside the 39-year-old man at the moment who became ill. He might have retreated into a comfortable retirement. Instead, he chose to exert his will and exercise his wiles, and that act of choosing more than anything else revealed who he was. His close friend and aide of the later presidential years, Harry Hopkins, once said, the guy never knows when he is licked. Hopkins said that was a defect. Perhaps it was. But obviously, it was also a strength. As the journalist John Gunther put it, because he had beaten his illness, 
Roosevelt thought that he could beat anything. Nearly half a century after Roosevelt died in 1945, the anthropologist Robert Murphy told the story of his own paralysis in an extraordinary memoir titled The Body Silent. Murphy observed that because all of us are wounded, visibly or invisibly, the struggle of the disabled represents the struggle of every man and woman. It stands for, quote, the battle of life's wounded against isolation, dependency, denigration, and entropy, and all other things that pull them backward out of life into their inner selves and ultimate negation. This struggle is the highest expression of the human rage for life, the ultimate purpose of our species. Paralytics and all the disabled are actors in a passion play, mummers in search of resurrection. One cannot help but see FDR's pursuit of the presidency as the embodiment of Murphy's idea. Roosevelt's best epitaph may be an offhand remark he made when an aide listening to him spin yet another grand plan said, Mr. President, you can't do that. The president looked at him and said, I've done a lot of things I can't do. Isn't that great? Thank you. Thank you. And I think that passage really highlights what the book is about. It's, to me, it's so much more than about a man and his battle with polio. It's about anybody and what it takes to have the strength of character to overcome any type of adversity. So uh, I can't imagine a better story than what Jim has created. We have a few moments for questions from the audience. Does anybody have any questions they'd like to ask Jim? Okay, John. Uh, Jim, the, the relationship as a, um, as a historian and biographer between the research and the writing, is that a time commitment? Is that a one-to-one, two-to-one, three-to-one, ten-to-one? How, how does that unfold to come into the, uh, into the book you wrote? I'm looking at my friends, the Raymonds, who watch my wife and me and my family, and they go through that very question like, are you still researching? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a great question, and uh, um, I would say probably that the uh, time ratio is about two to one. Um, it varies from book to book. I spent more time researching this book than my earlier books because of the kind of difficulty that I mentioned early on. Um, I, I uh, research for a journalist and historian is, is almost always a lot of fun. Um, writing is torture but uh, also deeply satisfying. I think I'm probably better as a writer than I, than I am as a researcher. So this, yeah, so um, that's my best answer to the question that bothers me every day. Am I spending too much time on research, not enough time on writing, or vice versa? It's a delicate dance that you're constantly trying to figure out. And it's, easy to put off, it's easy to put off writing when you do this kind of book thinking, oh gee, you know, I really need to do some more research. Research is a great procrastination tool. <laughs> and with a figure like FDR, where the material is absolutely endless, you could spend the rest of your life studying Franklin Roosevelt. It's very hard to say, no, I really do need to stop and, and write. On the other hand, once you start writing, you realize you, you, you see the holes that where you really do need to fill with more research. So it's a back and forth. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Here's a microphone right behind you. 
Frederick Holtz with a parish Episcopal school and also a uh, Miami of Ohio alum. You're fantastic. Uh, Obviously a very bright fellow. You're lucky to have him here in Texas. You <laughs> <laughs> can tell by the silver in the hair. Uh, it's one thing to uh, craft a, a personality and to develop uh, specific uh, skills that can translate into problem-solving um, abilities. But you need the time and the place as well. And so I was wondering, as you were writing your book, were you thinking about if, perhaps, the Great Depression and the Second World War hadn't been on the horizon, would those abilities of overcoming disadvantage that FDR had developed have been as useful or have made him uh, as uh, sure a choice for the presidency? Um, that's a very interesting question. Um, you know, in many ways, Theodore Roosevelt was a much more capable person than Franklin Roosevelt was. He was certainly smarter than Franklin was. Not that Franklin didn't have a, a sort of genius but Theodore Roosevelt is kind of a once-in-a-century type of guy. But his presidency is relatively unremarkable because he was not faced with the kind of crises that FDR faced. So um, it, it is true that uh, the, the, the events make a president in many ways, make or break a president. And some crises are right for one president and not for another. Um, so, um, are you asking whether, in, a, in, a, in more tranquil times, we never would have learned all this about FDR? If there hadn't been 1929, and so there was the gaiety of the 1920s, and they had continued, yeah. in that kind of environment, could he have evoked the kind of uh, authority and inspiration? Yeah. Well, you know, what if history is uh, fascinating? I love to do it, but it, you get into, you run into dead ends very fast. If, if there had been no 1929 and no Great Depression, Herbert Hoover would certainly have been president until 1936. Um, you know, would the country have been ready for a change of party after, after 16 years of, of Republicans in the White House? Maybe so, even if things were still going okay. Would Roosevelt have been the one, you know, uh, the, the circumstances of his nomination are so tricky, so wrapped up with who the other candidates were at the time, that it's pretty hard to tease that out. Um, but there, there is something poignant and powerful about the fact that a paralyzed man became president of a paralyzed country. And what, you know, Talmadge mentioned the great quotation of the first inaugural, when he says the only thing we have to fear is, is fear itself. You know, some people, some historians have said, ah, what does that really mean? That, that's just a PR slogan. Not at all. FDR meant that because he had learned that the great thing to fear is one's own paralysis through fear. The, 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 the despair that you feel when you believe you cannot overcome difficulty. And, and that was, he was an object lesson standing in front of the American people in 1933 when he became president. And the, the transformative effect 
that his personality had on the nation in 1933 is, a, is an extremely part, important part of his presidency that's often now overlooked. You know, we can talk about the New Deal's effectiveness or lack thereof, and it certainly did not make the Depression go away. But what did restore the nation, even when the economy was still in terrible shape, was FDR's personality, and his personality was shaped by disability. Another great line in the book, talking about with the Depression, uh, Hoover's popularity went down substantially, and somebody said, if you handed a flower to Herbert Hoover, it would wilt. <laughs> <laughs> Any yeah, other questions? All right, well, we sure are glad you came, and we hope you'll buy this fantastic book for the Christmas list that uh, you've got a lot of people who'd love to read this incredible comeback story. Extremely well written. Let's give Jim a final hand. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.